it's really good. Father, this morning, I thank you. I thank you for everything you've given us. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that makes your word come alive. I pray this morning that you would be glorified. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be able to move and take what I say and use it to your glory, to the glory of Jesus, to the glory of our Father. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Praise God. Praise God. You can turn the house lights up a bit. There we go. Perfect. God is so good. He is so good. I'm going to start this morning by talking about something that we've all heard, something that we probably all know. And then the second half of what I'm saying, I'm going to bring it around to, to um, giving um, and the message series that Megan has been speaking on. So I want to talk about the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. I want to talk about your heart for a little bit. Proverbs 4, 2023. It says, My son, pay attention to all the words I am telling you. Lean in closer so that you may hear all that I say. Keep them before you, meditate on them, and set them safely in your heart. For those who discover them, they are life. They bring wholeness and healing to their bodies. And above all else, watch over your heart. Diligently guard it, because from a sincere and pure heart come all the good and noble things of life. There's a whole lot <laughs> in these three verses. I could, I could probably preach a whole sermon on these three verses. Um, the Hebrew word for heart is basically your thoughts, our wills, our discernment, our affections. Our heart is who we are. And it's not, we all know this, but it's, it's not the organ that pumps blood through your body. In effect, it's your mind. Your heart is your mind. It's what you think on. It's what you dwell on. It's what you fantasize about. It's what you daydream about. If I had a million dollars, what would I do with it? That's who you are. You are what you think. You are what you think. It's interesting in verse 21, it says, meditate on them and set them safely in your heart. Keep them. If you meditate on the word of God and you think about it, and you think about it, and you think about it, and you meditate on it, it gets into your brain. And then when you need that verse, because something nasty is going on, it's there for you. It's meditate, it's there, it becomes who you are. The more time you spend meditating on the Word of God, the more the Word you become like the Word of God. It's a super, super important thing to do. We get up in the morning, we read our Bibles, and then do we forget about what we read or do we think about it throughout the day? And um, I'm as guilty as anyone else. There's lots of times I read it and I don't think about it. And I get home at the end of the day and I can't even remember what I read. Um, because I haven't been thinking about it at all. And it went in, it went out. It stays in if you think about it. It says, verse 22, discover them, the principles, the word of God. Because that is life. They bring wholeness and healing to your bodies. Wholeness and healing to your bodies comes from what you meditate on. It comes from what you think about. And above all else, watch over your heart diligently because from a sincere and pure heart come the good and noble things of life. There will always be times when you're going to think something ungodly. I have had some of the most ungodly thoughts in the world sitting right over there listening to Megan preach. <laughs> you know, and they're not always my thoughts. It's, lots of times it's an attack from the enemy because if they can get you thinking that and if, they can, if he can get you dwelling on that, then he's got you because that's becoming who you are. The battle of the mind is a huge. The battleground between God and the enemy happens between your ears. It is all happens in your mind. Everything physical, every action you do comes out of what you've thought and what you've meditated on in your mind. So if you had an altercation with somebody and you spend three days thinking about, oh, I should have said this and I should have said that. I could have put him in his place if I would have said this. You're becoming the grumpy, ordinary person that you're imagining yourself to be. And you have to work at not allowing that to happen. 
It's, and it's work, but especially if you're being attacked. But even if you're not being attacked, it doesn't matter whether you're being attacked or whether the thoughts are there from when you were born and, or all the years that you've lived and all the decisions you've made. You still have to fight those thoughts. That's why Paul said in Philippians, he gives us things to think about. Think of whatever is good. Think of whatever is pure. Think of whatever is holy. And if you can't think of anything to think about that's good and pure and holy, think about Jesus up in heaven standing next to the Father. You, you, you know that that's there. Think about how much he loved you and how much he gave his life for you. Proverbs 23, 6 and 7. Be sensible when you dine with a stingy man and don't eat more than you should. For as he thinks within himself, so is he. He will grudgingly say, go ahead and eat all you want. But in his heart, he resents the fact that he has to pay for your meal. And the stingy man is stingy because of what he's thinking in his head while you're eating the steak and lobster that he's paying for. That... <laughs> That is who he is. As much as he wants to put on an act, and as much as he gets away with putting on an act, he is the grumpy, stingy man that doesn't really want to pay for your meal. Because that's what he's thinking. That's what he's dwelling on. And the, the awesome thing is that we can change who we are by changing what we dwell on. Changing what we fantasize about. Changing what our daydreams are about. If I had a million dollars, what would I do? What are your daydreams about what you'd do with a million bucks? We'll get to that later. <laughs> but your heart is who you really, really, really are. What's in your mind, what you daydream fantasy about is truly who you are. Adrian Rogers said it this way. Um, I found this online. Adrian Rogers was a Baptist pastor, but he said it so well. If you tell me what you think, I'll tell you who you are and the life you live. What you think is what you are. The thought life controls you. Your thoughts, positive or negative, good or bad, control your attitudes. Your attitudes are the sum total of your thoughts. And then your attitudes lead to your actions. If you have ever, and I have done this, if you have ever reacted to something and an hour later went, where did that come from? How in the world could I have done that? It's because somewhere in your mind, you have thought that through. Somewhere in your mind, you have thought it through and it has come out when you least want it to. Well, there's never a good time for it to come out, but it always seems to come out at the bad times. <laughs> it's what we continue, continually dwell on that makes us who we are. Our, and here's the thing. Our actions can be correct perfectly and our attitudes be completely incorrect. If our attitudes are correct, what we do will flow from it and we don't have to worry about too much about that but if we're doing the right things and our attitudes are wrong then we're in trouble in Hosea 6 6 Hosea said I want you to show love this is God speaking through Isaiah through Hosea I want you to show love not offer sacrifices I want you to know me more than I want you to do make a burnt offering God wants us to know him more than he wants us to sacrifice more than he wants us to give he wants us to know who he is if we know who he is the giving will come naturally and we won't have to work at it and Jesus quoted this scripture at least twice in the New Testament once of them once when Jesus sat down with Matthew and the tax collectors for supper and he was criticized by the religious people because he was eating with sinners and Jesus said Go and look up the verse, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and figure out what it means. That's what Jesus' reaction to him was. And then one time, Jesus' disciples, and this is in um, Matthew 9 and Matthew 12, his disciples were hungry on a Sunday morning, and they walked through a field, and they took some grain and ate it. And the Pharisees were extremely upset because they were harvesting on Sunday. It was a rule, it was in the law, that you don't harvest on Sunday. And Jesus said, I desire mercy. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And again, he said, go look up that verse and figure out what it means. It was interesting that Jesus didn't tell him what it meant. He said, you go figure it out. You know, and then we have the story of the Good Samaritan. Where this guy gets robbed and he's left in the ditch. And a Levite comes by and goes, hmm. That, he must have done something wrong. And the other side of the road keeps going. 
priest comes by, same thing, and a Samaritan comes by who the Jews did not associate with. And the Samaritan took this fellow, took him to the hotel, to the hospital, said, I'll pay the bill. Just tell me what it is. Here's some, here's a deposit. Look after that guy. The Samaritan had in his mind, his heart, which is his mind, he, he loved people because it, and it resulted. And we can tell that he loved people because of how he treated the guy in the ditch. The other two, the ones that went to church all the time, not so much. So we can do the right things and have a completely wrong attitude. And then it just works. Luke 18, 10 to 14. I'm just going to read through this, this whole um, story that Jesus told. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a proud religious leader. The other was a despised tax collector. The religious leader stood apart from others and prayed. How I thank you, O God, that I'm not wicked like everybody else. They're all cheaters and they're swindlers and they're crooks. Like that tax collector over there in the corner. God, you know that I never cheat or commit adultery. I fast from food twice a week. I give you a tenth of all I earn. <laughs> it's interesting that the religious leader was proud in what he was doing, not in who he was serving. The tax collector stood alone in the corner, away from the holy place, covered his face with his hands, feeling that he was unworthy even to look up to God. Beating his breast, he sobbed in brokenness and tears, saying, God, please, in your mercy, and because of the blood sacrifice, forgive me, for I am nothing but the most miserable of all sinners. And then Jesus said, which one of them left that day reconciled to God? The tax collector, the humble tax collector, not the religious leader. Everybody who praises himself will one day be publicly humiliated. Everyone who humbles himself will one day be publicly honored. The religious leader was more concerned about what he was doing than who he was doing it for. And Jesus said that he did not leave. whole with God. I'm trying to find the right words here, but I <laughs> can't find them. It was the tax collector who left reconciled to God because of the blood's sacrifice. He was honoring God. The religious leader wasn't. So just, just for a second, what does a humble person look like? What is humility? Joel and I used to laugh about this because the first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch, written by Moses. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And somewhere in there, it says that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. And Moses wrote that. So... <laughs> maybe, maybe being meek and humble isn't what we think it is. Maybe it's not. I think the humble person is the person who works for God's glory to be evident on the earth. And what they do is done to glorify God and never themselves. The humble person doesn't care if he gets recognition for what he's doing. The humble person doesn't care if he gets repaid for what he's doing because he just wants to see God glorified. And when that's all you want, God being glorified is a, is a huge reward. When, when God says, I am your great reward, it is a huge thing. I never understood that for so many years. But knowing God and hearing him is one of the biggest things, rewards I could ever imagine. I really don't want anything other than that. If I had anything else but didn't have that, I would have nothing. I would have nothing. See, and, and you can see it in Moses' life. When he decided he was a Jew, when he found out, and he was going to set the Jews free from Egypt's rule, it resulted in him murdering somebody and being banished from Egypt. Because he wasn't, he was doing it because I, you know, look who I am. I have been risen, I have been raised in Pharaoh's household. There is nobody that's had a better upbringing than me. Nobody's had a better education than me. I'm the guys who can lead this out. 
And that is perfectly true. But he didn't say, I'm the guy God can use to lead them out. He said, I'm the guy that can lead them out. And he got banished. 40 years later, he comes back again. And doesn't even want to be the speaker. He has Aaron do his talking for him. He doesn't care if he gets the glory anymore. Did it take 40 years to learn that? It's quite possible. It's not an easy thing to learn when, when God starts changing your attitudes. Because it's what you think. And your habit of how, what you think about when it needs to be changed, it takes a while to change sometimes. Sometimes it's a miracle. Sometimes it isn't. I guess that's God's prerogative. Proverbs 16, 1 to 2. 1 and 2. People go about making their plans, but the eternal has the final word. Even when you think you have good intentions, he knows your real motives. You know, sometimes we don't even know our own motives. Most of the times, we do things, we're driven by things, and we find out that our motives maybe aren't right when we get angry, or when, when usually it's anger that boils up, and we have no idea why we're angry, or why it was such a huge thing. He knows your real motives. And then we can go to God. Emotions are wonderful things, and they're horrible things. <laughs> but emotions will tell you when there's something wrong inside. And then you can take it to God and find out exactly what it is. So when you're walking through your life, and you've had three or four days where you just feel cruddy, and it's not a physical thing, it's an emotional thing, it's time to stop and find out why. Because like your physical body, when there's pain, it's signaling something wrong. When you have emotional pain, and it's not just having a one bad day, if it's two or three days, it's signaling something's wrong. And then you have to go to God to find out what it is, because he's really the only one that knows. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is the most devious and incurable, incurably sick. Who can understand it? It is I, the eternal one, who probes the innermost heart and examines the innermost thoughts. I will compensate each person justly according to his ways and by what his actions deserve. He knows what's in your heart. And, 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 and our hearts can be incredibly sick and we would not even know it. Until God shows us, until God shows us. God started showing me my heart about three or four years ago. And I couldn't believe the garbage that was in there. I had no idea it was there until God started showing me. And I thank God that he did that. He is so good. He's so faithful. He probes the innermost heart and examines the innermost thoughts. And then compensates each person according to his ways and what his actions were. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, you see, is alive and moving, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing the divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and will of the heart. Your benchmark is the word of God. The benchmark that we judge everything by is the word of God. The benchmark we judge our, we, we, we judge our motives by benchmark is the Word of God. If it lines up with the Word of God, we're good. If it doesn't, if you, you know, especially if you're, if you have some emotional pain going on and you don't know why, there's something in there that's not lining up with the Word of God. And he wants to shine some light on it. He wants to shine some light on it. Um, while I was going through the last 30 some years, I asked God one day, I said, how can all those dark things be in my heart and have you in my heart at the same time? Like, I'd been saved for 38 years and, and hadn't known any of this stuff that was there. God just told me to share this, so it's for somebody out there. It really messed up my theology because I didn't believe that darkness and light could live in the same place together. So, I am searching God about, and I'm sitting in service and God points something out to me. He said to me, do you see the head of the snake? 
Now the snake is a big cable that goes along behind and it's right back there. It's got all the microphones plugged into it. That's what we call the snake. He said, do you see that? I said, yep. He said, it is bathed in more light than anything else in this room, which are all of these. And yet inside of it, there is not a bit of light because there are four corners at the bottom and the top and it's sealed. It is sitting in the light and yet there is darkness inside of it. And so what God showed me is that until we open it up and we give it to God, the light's not going to shine in there and it's going to stay there. Now, the, the, the one thing that I was praying about and trying and working through, I had given to God thousands of times. It's not like I'd hid it from God, but I had hid it from absolutely everybody else. Nobody knew. It was when I talked to somebody. In James it says to confess your sins to one another and then the prayer of a righteous man will avail much. So I talked to somebody, Megan and I sat down and I talked to her about this. And once I had talked to her about it, then the light could shine in because then she could pray and her prayer would avail much. And that's not in my notes, but for whoever, whoever out there needs to talk to somebody, um, if you don't have anybody, call the front desk and we'll find somebody for sure. So let's take this around and talk about money and talk about giving. And again, giving is not just money. It's giving of your time. It's giving of your talents. It's giving of um, what you know. It's, it's giving anything you give. Um, we're talking about money because money is what the series is that we're in the middle of. Prosperity, it's in the Bible. It is in there all over the place. Um, I think the Bible talks more about money and prosperity than anything else. You can find it all through the Old Testament. You can find it all through the New Testament. It is everywhere. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is one of our favorites, right? The first quarter of the verse talks about how blessed you are coming in, going out. And of course, the last three quarters of the chapter talk about how unblessed you are if you're not doing it properly. But the whole thing about prosperity is it presupposes that you have a relationship with God. It's not, see, we made it a formula. We made a mistake in the sense that we took the prosperity, we took all the verses on the Bible, and we made it a formula. And we said, if we say this verse every day, then it will build our faith, and our faith will bring it to pass. And that works if you have a relationship with our Father. If you don't have a relationship, if you don't know who He is, if you don't know what he thinks, if you don't know what he loves, if you don't know what he hates, it ain't gonna work. Because you have to have the relationship. The people that worked for are people who knew God. They heard God, they did what they, God told them to do, and God came through. It comes from your heart. Prosperity comes from your heart. And it is your attitude. It is why you want to prosper. Do you want to prosper because you want to be rich? Do you want to prosper because you don't, then you don't have to call the visa company and tell them you don't have money for them this month? Do you want to prosper because you want to be the guy in the church that God prospers the most? In other words, you want glory out of God prospering you? Or, do you want to prosper so God can be glorified? Do you want to prosper so that nobody knows you're prospering but God? And, and again, I'm talking about money, but this goes through everything. It, goes, it, it covers relationships. It covers the time you spend, the volunteering. It covers the people you're friendly to. It covers everything. Your attitude is what opens and closes the gate. And that is in your mind. It's what you think about. It's what you dwell on. And the enemy will do everything he can. He's called the enemy of our souls for a reason. Our soul is our mind, our will, and our emotion. And he will do everything he can to get you thinking wrong. 
And, and there are times with the best intentions in the world, I have begun to think wrong. And then my emotions act up and I go to God and I say, what's, what's wrong? And he'll point out, if I sit and listen to him, he points out where I went south, where I went wrong. I was so afraid of doing something wrong, I did nothing. Really, because fear stopped me. Because what if it's the wrong thing? What if I do this and those people take what I'm doing and misunderstand it? You know, what if, I, you know, and God said to me one day, he said, you need to trust me that I will not let you slide down the abyss. That I love you enough that if you step off the road, I will pull you back up. And suddenly I saw Peter walking on the water, completely different. I mean, we always look at Peter and we say, he saw the waves, because the Bible says, he looked, he saw the waves, and he sank. But he was the only one that crawled out of the boat, to start with. And secondly, when things began to go wrong and he began to sink, he knew exactly who to call out to. He called out to Jesus instantly. And what did Jesus do? He reached down and he pulled him up. And I had to learn to trust God enough that if I made a mistake, he would let me know and I could correct it. Because he loves us all that much. We have to trust that he will let us know when we make a mistake and to let our love become an action. And he'll let us know if we're doing the wrong thing. That was really big for me. That was huge for me. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says, But I will say this to encourage your generosity. The one who plants little, harvests little. The one who plants plenty, harvests plenty. This is the seed time and harvest that Megan mentioned. I don't think it was last week, the week before. This is a spiritual principle. It always happens. What you sow, you're going to reap. That's happens. It's no different than a lit match into the gasoline. It's going to explode. That's what happens. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual principle. It happens. Verse 2. Giving grows out of the heart. Otherwise, you've reluctantly grumbled, yes, because you felt you had to or because you couldn't say no. But this isn't the way God wants it. For we know that God loves a cheerful giver. Again, your, your motivation for giving, your attitude towards giving has to be correct. Otherwise, it just works. And God's really not there for you. He's still going to bless the person you're giving something to, whether it's time or, what, or money, whatever. But for yourself, it won't benefit you at all. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 If we speak like messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news, our purpose is to please God and not people. He alone examines the motives of our heart. Our purpose is to please God. Our purpose is not to please Megan. And it is so easy for all of us to want to please the pastor. Now, please don't take this the wrong way, okay? I, uh, you know, but our motive has to be, we're serving God here in whatever we're, Megan has asked us to do. We're serving God doing that. We're not serving her. And she will be the first to tell you that. This isn't her kingdom. She's your pastor. She's your spiritual leader. But she's not your father. She's not your heavenly father. And our motives need to work for God. We need to be, we need to do to please God. And in saying that, what you do does not please God at all. It's why you do it that pleases God. It's why you do it. We're going to go to James and, and, and read it. And James can be pretty brutal. He puts things flat out there. And, and James is more of a practical book than a spiritual book. And actually, I believe it was Martin Luther wanted James removed from the Bible because he doesn't not preaching faith, he's preaching practical things. I thank God it wasn't. James 4, verse 1. 1 to 3. Where do you think your fighting and endless conflict comes from? 
Don't you think that they originate in the constant pursuit of gratification that rages inside of you like an uncontrolled militia? You crave something that you do not possess, so you murder to get it. You desire the things you cannot earn, so you sue others and fight for what you want. You do not have because you've not chosen to ask. And when you do ask, you still don't get it because you want it for your motive, because your motives are all wrong, because you continually focus on self-indulgence. That's kind of brutal and that hurts. Um, and the, the, rest, the rest of the chapter does as well, but I, I just won't go there at this point. So this is the point where the enemy will come to your mind and tell you what a horrible, rotten person you are because your motives were wrong. And that is ungodly thinking. That's an ungodly thought. And I'm not bringing it up so that you all leave here feeling like you're idiots and you did the worst thing in the world and there's no way you'll ever be a good Christian. Don't, don't go there. The only reason I'm bringing it up is because there are so many who have taken the prosperity gospel and it's not worked for them and they have got angry or upset at God because what his promises are in the Bible if they don't come to pass. Many have walked away because of that. And I just want you to know one of the reasons why prosperity may not be working. James 4.6 says, You may think the situation is hopeless, but God gives us more grace when we turn away from our own interests. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud and he pours out grace on the humble. The more hopeless it is, the more grace God will give you. And the bigger the glory is that God gets when your hopeless situation is turned around. But the hopeless situation gets turned around for God's glory, not for yours. It gets turned around for God's glory, not yours. It took me 10 years to learn this. We moved here in 1990, and Stephen was six years old because God had told us to put Steve, to put our kids in a Christian school, which at the time was illegal. And so it was very difficult for Marge and I to do this. But we really, it was pretty clear that God wanted us to do that. I was struggling with the whole thing. And God said to me one day, I sat down to have supper. And God said, do you want your children to go to university or do you want them to go to heaven? Well, and that kind of sealed it for me. I knew what he wanted me to do. Now, please, I'm not saying that if your kids go to the public school, they're not going to go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's what God said for my three children, for my three children. And I never told anybody this until they had all graduated because I didn't want anybody to get the idea that I was telling them that their kids are going to go to hell if they go to public school. That is so not true. That is so not true. I went to a public school. <laughs> but I knew what God wanted for my kids. And so we looked around and there was either Saskatoon or Prince Albert. And I did not have a job in either place. And I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do. September is getting closer and closer and closer. Stephen's six years old. It's time for him to go to school. So we enrolled him in Saskatoon. Because I felt more comfortable in Saskatoon because I grew up there than I did in Prince Albert. Um, but then God spoke to me and said, no, Prince Albert is the place. Prince Albert's the place. Well, there happened to be a job open at the penitentiary. And so I had started believing God and started working through prosperity scriptures, started saying them over and over in my heart two years before this. So this is two years I've been trying to work the prosperity message and I haven't quite been able to. So I'm saying, God, how can we move without a job? How can we even do that? And <laughs> God showed me this ad said, this job at the penitentiary. And God said, that's yours. So we packed up when we moved here. I went, I got an interview at the penitentiary and somebody else got the job. And it completely destroyed any confidence I had in my ability to hear God. For years and years and years, I didn't think anything that 
I heard was God at all. We moved here. Um, and it was pretty difficult because I didn't have a job. The only job I could find, after, you know, after all of this, eight years after we moved here, I was working for $800 a month at a car lot. There was no prosperity, you know. Stephen had a paper route, and we took the money he made from the paper route to buy bologna to put in between the bread so he had something to take to school for lunch. Marge worked at the school so that the school bills would be looked after. And on 800 bucks, we made a mortgage payment, a car payment. We had a couple of credit cards, and we had to buy food. So, you know, we had so many words saying, God's going to turn this around. God's going to turn this around. God's going to turn all of this around. You're going to be okay. And the, the last one I got, I went to God and said, stop telling me that. If you're not going to do it, I don't want to hear it. And um, that was for, oh, 10 years, I never got a word from anybody about anything. God, God did, okay. He said, okay, if you don't want to hear it, that's fine. I won't say it. I remember one time the rad went in our car and the car didn't work. And at the time I had a home delivery milk business. I had this big ugly truck that I would put milk in and I would just deliver it to houses. And we came to work, put the kids in the milk truck. They sat on a milk crate and we drove them to church. I had gotten to the point after eight years of being here Two years before that, so for t after 10 years of reading prosperity scriptures and quoting them and doing everything we were told to do, I, I, I had a call from the visa company and I couldn't make the payment. And they were pretty brutal. They told me that they were going to you know, seize whatever stuff I had. I think it was an $800 credit card bill. It wasn't huge, but it was pretty bad. And I took my prosperity scriptures and I crumpled them up in a bowl and I threw them in the garbage. And I went to God and I said, I give up. I mean, it's obviously there. It's obviously in the Bible, but I can't make it work. And so I just give up. I quit. If I'm poor the rest of my life and I have to live like this until I die, I am still going to go to church. I am still going to worship you. I'm still going to give you what you asked me to give you. And if I don't ever get a penny back, I don't care anymore. I am just going to worship you. And you know what? There was six, six or seven weeks after that, I got a call from the hospital. They needed somebody to, I had a, I had a third class steam ticket, so they needed somebody to run their boilers on a casual basis. And so they hired me, which was pretty amazing. But the only reason they hired me is because they were having a fight with somebody in the union and they wanted to win. So if they hired me, then the other guy would be out because I had a better classification than they did. So the only reason they hired me was to settle a union squabble. And, um, but they hired me, God used that. But then the enemy came along three or four months later because I was doing really w well then because, it, it, you know, um, it was a way better wage than what I was making. But that home delivery milk business I had, I had sold it to somebody. And he was making payments to me to pay off the truck. And then he was supposed to be buying the milk and stuff from the dairy and selling it. Well, then I got notice from the dairy that he was using my account and he ran it up to 20 grand and I got sued. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, they wanted their money and I said, well, yeah, like what do I have to stand on? And so they won the lawsuit and they garnished the wage at the hospital and I was making $75 a month. And so I had to file for bankruptcy. And um, bankruptcy is not bad. I mean, I, assume, I looked at it as complete and utter failure. And um, 
but it was a chance to start over. If any of you have been through bankruptcy or maybe being forced into it or maybe looking at it, it's a second chance. It's a second chance to get it right. And I let the enemy just condemn me like you wouldn't believe because I failed and I had to file. But I had told God it didn't matter what happened, I'm still going to go to church. I am still going to tithe. I'm going to give an offering and let the chips fall where they may. I'm just going to honor God. <laughs> so, Cliff remembers this, I think. I was on unemployment because they closed the Holy Family Hospital and those engineers went to the Vic and they had more seniority and I just got bumped way down the list and I was getting one day a week, one day a month to work. But then I noticed in the paper an ad because Steve was still delivering papers. For people who are on employment insurance, they could go to this class and learn how to use a computer and possibly retrain themselves to get a different job. So I applied and they said, yep, and Cliff applied. I think Cliff was with me, he applied because the two of us were both unemployed. And um, we went and God showed me how to use a spreadsheet. <laughs> For those who know me, um, that's, I love spreadsheets. <laughs> They're my favorite thing. When I worked, when I worked at the pen, I had spreadsheets for everything. I was kind of known as the spreadsheet king because I, any information you wanted, I had it on a spreadsheet somewhere. And I learned how to do that. So then one day, I got the one call, the one call to uh, do my one day a month at the, at, the, at the Vic Hospital. And it was cleaning out a sulfite tank. And um, it's a filthy, dirty, ugly job. I mean, I was wearing a mask. I took the mask off and I was as black as, uh, my face was as black as this underneath the mask. Um, and sulfite is the chemical that's used to take the oxygen out of the water. But this tank, and so I was in there with an angle grinder and a brush. The tank hanged from the roof. It was probably 20 feet off the ground with a catwalk around it. And a manhole about that big for me to get through. So I'm in there and I'm cleaning this tank. And these, I see a pair, like three pairs of legs walk by. And I thought, nobody's supposed to be up here. Like, this is just a catwalk. It's, it's nothing here. So I stuck my head out to see what it was. And I was completely black. <laughs> no, sir, this completely black face sticking out looking at these three people. And um, it was the chief engineer at the penitentiary was taking an inmate through to show him what a different power plant looked like. And so the supervisor at the Vic said that I was looking for a job. And afterwards, the engineering supervisor at the penitentiary said that he looked at me and thought, well, at least he's not afraid to work because I was absolutely pitch black. And then he called me and um, I went down and I started casual and I worked there. I was, I was given six months and so I took it because I didn't know what to do. I was going to retrain for, for computer repair. I had the student loans in place. I was accepted into SIAST. And then I was offered this temporary position at the penitentiary. And I'm praying and I'm praying and God's not saying nothing. And so he phones me back, says, well, just come down and walk through it. Just have a look at it. I can do that. So I went down there and they gave me visitors tag. And as I shut the door to drive down there, God said, take the job, not, not the school. And it was clear. So when I got there, I signed all the papers. And, I started working there. Well, you know, I got on full time. I ended up being the engineering supervisor. Going through the drawers one day, I found the very first job I applied for that I never got. The guy that got it, I was supervising. <laughs> and then three years later, I became the manager of the whole maintenance department. And six years after that, I became the manager of every federal institution in the province. Um, and when I retired, I was running four different institutions. But what turned it all around? What turned it around is when I went to God and said, I am serving you and I don't care what. I can't make it work. I'm doing something wrong. I don't know what it is. But I'm, I'm just not even going to try anymore. I am just going to do my best to serve you. And if I'm poor forever, I'm poor forever. I don't care. 
that's what and that's when it turned around it's when i stopped trying to get prosperity to work so that my needs would be met so that i wouldn't have to talk to the visa company again so that i could buy a rad for the car so that people would look and say look how god blessed him i want to be like him those were all wrong motives and all of them shut the door to the prosperity that god wanted to give me and i stumbled upon it out of sheer frustration but our attitudes are so super super important and and we really need to go to god and ask him to show us because if we don't ask him sometimes he won't he is a gentleman he the enemy will force his way into your mind he will he will force his way into your mind and he will get you to think the worst things in the world god doesn't do that he won't force his way into your mind you have to open the door and let him in behold i stand at the door and knock that is not just for people who are not saved it is for all of us stand at the door and knock let him in ask him to show you where your motives are incorrect i promise you he will he pro i promise you he will so i realize that there may be some confusion about now what are my motives like what how do i know how do i know whether i'm doing this right or whether my attitude is wrong i'm going to give you eight questions and shelby you can come if you want these eight questions will help you to look at yourself and decide what are my motives for doing this and the cool thing is when you notice your motives are wrong you can change them you can stop and you can say god this is wrong my motivation is wrong please change it for me i can't tell you how many times god did that for me standing over there playing the guitar god would say who are you playing for and i go oh gee you're right and it would just an instant shift and it was good but if no one ever knows what i am doing giving serving sacrificing will i still do it if the answer is no then your motives are wrong if there was no visible payoff for doing this if i never got an income tax return for giving to the church would i still do it your motivation would i joyfully take a lesser position if god asked me to you know what i always said no problem i'll take i'll take a smaller position until god asked me to do it and it was one of the hardest things i ever did in my life but you know god brought that around i don't know if you notice i was gone from the praise and worship team for about eight or nine months god was changing my attitude he was changing my identity and therefore my attitude Am I doing this for the praise of others or how it makes me feel or am I doing this for God's glory? If I had to suffer for continuing what God has called me to do, would I keep doing it? God called us to Prince Albert. I knew God had called us to Prince Albert. And we suffered for 8 years until I could figure out what the problem was, until God showed me. But I kept here. I stayed here because I knew this is where God called me. If people misunderstand what I'm doing or criticize my actions, will I stop? Or will I keep doing what God told me to do? If others misunderstand or criticize my actions, I just read that one, didn't I? If those whom I am serving never show gratitude or repay me in any way, will I still do it? If God calls me to serve and Megan never says thank you, will I still serve? Or will I feel used and leave? you feel that you're being used and you want to leave then your motivation is wrong and your attitude is wrong and it just needs to shift a little bit do i judge my success or my failure based upon the my faithfulness to what god has asked me to do or how i compare with other people never compare yourself to somebody else you are not somebody else you are not i remember asking god one time to make me like megan because i just was so amazed at how she loves people and i'm driving to work and i said god i want to be like her and god said no they can do that he said she doesn't need another megan she needs a wayne and that kind of surprised me i did not expect him to say that i thought i was being really religious in that request and god just says no <laughs> i thought i was being awesome and super spiritual and god says no anyway so the bottom line is whenever we do what we do for God 
We need to look inside our hearts, make sure our motives are right. And if God shows us that they're not, we don't stop doing it. We just change our motives. We just give it to God and say, God, change, change me. I can't change me. I am who I am. You know, I am what experiences in my life has made me. And if that's wrong, then I need you to change me because I can't do it. Then God will honor that. He'll change you. He certainly will step in and, and he, he will change you. When, we, when I was 14, we moved to Saskatoon. I suppose I should stop soon. Yeah, um, when I was, I'll be quick. When I was 14, we moved to Saskatoon. I was mad at God because we had to move to Saskatoon when I was 14. And I really, I said to myself, you know what? Well, God hates people that swears, so I'm going to swear because I'm mad at God. I was 14. I started cussing like a trooper. You know, when I was 18, I got, I rededicated my life back to God again, but couldn't stop swearing. I couldn't stop. As much as I tried, I had spent four years teaching myself to cuss, and I could not teach myself to uncuss. And so I, went, I took it to God. I said, I can't stop. If you want me to stop, you're going to have to change me because I can't. And about three weeks later, I got my finger caught in a conveyor belt. And I went, oh, man, that hurts. But, hey, no swear words. God will change you if you ask him. Father, I thank you for everything you've given us. I thank you for showing us where we go wrong. I thank you for showing us where we can go right. And Father, I just pray a blessing over each and every person here. I pray that you would speak to each of them, that they would open their hearts to you and their minds so that you could move in and start changing who we are so that we could become who you want us to be. We want to be your church. We want to be who you want us to be. So change us, Lord. Make us whole. Make us the people you want us to be and change our attitudes and our thoughts. Father, in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Embassy Church, visit our website at embassychurch.ca.